All right, so let's begin. We're in Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 1. Uh, Now the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. But not during the festival, for they said, or the people may riot. All right, so let's pause there for a moment, and let's talk a little bit about the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread. Uh, what can you tell me about Passover? That is the Jewish holiday. The Jewish holiday. It's the oldest uh, holiday on earth. Okay. The oldest holiday on earth. Um, yeah. Except for the Sabbath, maybe, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, it is... It is, there's a number, what is the significance of Passover? There are several significant, significances, is this? <laughs> what? Put the blood on the door. Okay, okay, so. And when the uh, ghost came by to kill the firstborn, he skipped the Jews because they had the symbol up on the door. Okay, so that's where we get the idea of the Passover, right? The the death angel comes sweeping through Egypt um, to take the lives of all the firstborn. And uh, the Jews were told that they were to sacrifice a perfect lamb. And they were to take that lamb's blood and they were to paint it on the doorposts and lentils of the house that they were in. And they were to consume the lamb, to eat the lamb and have a meal together. And uh, while that was happening that night, they would be protected from from death and from uh, the wrath of God that was passing through Egypt. Uh, so, yes, uh, that is part of it. What else is part of it? It's a foreshadowing of the cross and resurrection. Amen. So, so it, it certainly foreshadows the cross. It's got this idea of substitutionary atonement, right? Uh, where a, a lamb dies so that a, the firstborn does not die, right? Um, what else? It's got this concept of going from bondage and slavery into freedom. Okay. So it's the transference from bondage and slavery uh, into freedom. It's also, it's the 4th of July for the Jewish people, right? It's their Independence Day. It's the day that they come out of slavery and they are constituted as, as a nation, right? They are for the first time. Before that, they were a family, They go down into Egypt for 430 years. And then they come out of Egypt um, as a nation. And And, uh, so so we have all of that going on. All right? Yes. You said something about the blood substituted for the firstborn. And in the second case, the firstborn substituted for the blood. I mean, it was blood also, but... I mean, the firstborn of God yes. became the sacrifice. Ex- so it was kind of a juxtaposition of uh, what was going to save us at, at the second. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The cost, the cost to turn away God's wrath, yeah. the propitiation, right? If you, were pay, if you were paying attention, right? <laughs> to turn away God's wrath was the death of the firstborn. And obviously that is pointing forward to the death of God's firstborn. 
Jesus. So we've got all these things wrapped up into the, into, into, um, in, in, into the Passover. It's interesting, too, the Passover, um, we, when, when you read the story of the Passover, you can read it in, Genesis, or in Exodus chapter 12. It's a proscriptive passage. It's not just a narrative. When you read it, you realize it's the institution of the holiday, of the feast, okay? And that's part of the narrative, okay? You are to do this every year at the first of the year. This is also their New Year's, okay? And um, all of that. And so um, as we read this story, Jesus is going to appropriate this feast into what we celebrate as we come together. Um, and it's, it, it is the, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, okay, which takes the place of the Passover table, okay? So it is that commemoration that is now what we carry forward. It's actually part of prophecy, I mean, too. I mean, it's a prophetic yes. happening. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, unleavened bread. The unleavened bread, um, this is also the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread. The Passover is one night. The festival of unleavened bread lasts seven days. The seven days of unleavened bread um, is important. And I, I want to make this point because uh, we tend to just pass over the Eid to Passover. We just <laughs> pass over the idea of the unleavened bread because we think about Passover, we think about that meal, we think about the lamb and all of that. Um, but the unleavened bread is an important picture as well. What does yeast symbolize? Sin. Sin, okay? And so when they leave Egypt, the idea is they leave in haste and they don't have time to let their bread rise, right? But it's more than that. They could have carried a, a lump of leavened bread with them. It's not that they had to, they, they could have let it rise in the desert, right? It wouldn't have been a problem. But if you, re, you remember when you used to make that friendship bread? <laughs> remember, you would make that bread and then you'd give it away and then it keep growing in your refrigerator and you had to keep giving it away and pretty soon nobody wanted to see, nobody would talk to you, right? Because they didn't want more of that bread, right? It was just, and then you have to kill it, right? You'd have to just throw it away. You just kill the thing. And, um, in the exactly, right. There are whole landfills dedicated to that bread. And so, uh, that's the way bread was leavened in the ancient world. It wasn't leavened. You didn't go down to Walmart and buy little packets of yeast. Okay. It didn't exist. Um, you would, you would make bread every day. And after your, you made your bread, your bread would rise. Before you baked it, you would take a little bit of that dough and you would wrap it up in a cloth and set it aside. You would bake your bread. The next day, you would make more dough. You would take that little lump that was infected with the bacteria of leaven and you would knead it into your dough and you would allow that to rise and then you'd separate a little lump again and you'd put it in the same cloth and you'd bake your bread and every day that happened, okay? And so the yeast was the yeast of Egypt. This was the sin of Egypt. Think about 430 years. 
Just go back in your mind in American history 400 years, okay? And think about how much influence that is on culture, on the culture of a minority population within that broader culture. This is Egypt. This is the most successful, most powerful culture in the ancient world. And you are a minority population being hosted and then eventually enslaved by that population. Their values, their religion, everything about Egypt has influenced you and your culture. And God says, get out of Egypt and leave their yeast behind. Make a break with the infection of Egypt and leave it behind. Now you're going out, I'm going to give you a new culture and a new set of values and a new way of looking at the world, okay? A new structure for living, okay? And all that is, it's a new, it's a new bread, it's a new system, okay? And so you see, this unleavened bread idea, I think is a really important picture, um, of the new life, okay, that Jesus gives us. Somewhere along the um, line, after they left Egypt, they must have learned how to make yeast again. They got re-leavened somewhere, well, okay. They, they had real bread. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, and God may have, I mean, hey, they're, they're doing manna bread for quite a while. And uh, so we don't know we don't know about, much about that, but you know they get into Canaan, they probably pick up yeast again. Uh, but uh, it's a different. The Lord is intentionally breaking them away from Egypt. Do you, you see that? It's an important picture. All right. So the chief priests, teachers of the law, they're scheming to arrest Jesus, and they want to kill him, but they're afraid of the people. Now, now we go into this story of what happens in Bethany. Um, so, uh, somebody read for us verses 3 through, um, th- read through, through 11. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. It was made of pure nards. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Now some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this is a waste of perfume. It should have been sold for more than a three years wages and the money given to the poor. And they rejected rejected her harshly. (coughs) Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. And she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Please, surely I tell you, whenever the gospel is preached, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. 
And then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Okay, thank you. Uh, okay, so meanwhile, back in Bethany, um, what's significant about Bethany? Okay, yeah, but we, we, don't, we don't really know that in Mark. We know that in John. Um, but it is where Jesus has been kind of hanging out, right? He goes back and forth from Bethany to Jerusalem. Remember, it's over, it's over the mountain. So it's over uh, the, the, the Mount of Olives on the back side, the, the east side of the Mount of Olives. Um, You're not going to draw a map to show us that? I could, certainly. Oh, my God. So, so we've... This thing is dry. Um, so we've got Jerusalem. We have the Mount of Olives that runs as a ridge along here. And Beth Page is here. There's a ridge road that runs, of course, along the ridge. And there's a road that comes down through the Kidron Valley and up to the temple, which sits here. Bethany sits right over here on the, on the back side of the mountain to the south. Okay? This is Bethany. What does the word Bethany mean? House of figs. It can mean the house of figs. It can also mean the house of misery, which is strange. I, that's what I said. I like figs better. Um, but... There's some speculation that possibly this community was originally a community of outcasts. Um, it is the home of Simon the leper. And possibly this was like a leper colony. Think of where it's located in relation to Jerusalem. It's over the mountain, right on the edge of the desert. Uh, it's kind of the last suburb before, you know, it's Owasso. It's right before you leave the... <laughs> The, 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 the megalopolis that is Jerusalem, right? And so it's right on the edge. And it's Collinsville. And, um, and so that's Bethany. And so here we have this house of a leper. Um, obviously, he's a former leper uh, because they wouldn't be meeting at his house if he was still a leper. Uh, maybe Jesus healed him. Uh, probably um, if, if we try to uh, harmonize it with what happened in John, um, many people think that this is probably the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the, the patriarch of the family. And so Mary, Martha, Lazarus would have been there at the home. The father was hosting the meal, right? So that's how uh, we harmonize these very similar stories. They're probably the same story. And this is probably Mary, the mother or the sister of Lazarus, who does this deed. But she is unnamed in the Gospel of Mark. And that is significant that she is unnamed. She comes. And what does she do to Jesus? She anoints him with oil, uh, a perfume. And so what does she do to, with, the, with, the, with this very expensive jar of perfume yeah yeah first it says she broke the jar okay it doesn't say she opened the jar she says she broke the jar uh 
Okay, yeah. so this means a total commitment of the perfume. She didn't, yeah, a little dab will do you? Yeah, no, it wasn't a little dab. Uh, she didn't give him a little squirt. She didn't go, right? She, she broke the jar and poured the entire contents of the jar over Jesus' head and anointed him. Preparation for burial? Well, that's exactly what Jesus is going to say. Um, some of those present were indignant. Now, where have we heard this word indignant before? We've heard it several times, haven't we? Huh? Well, certainly the disciples were once indignant when James and John tried to elbow their way to the front of the line and, uh, and, and try to claim the right and left positions on Jesus, in Jesus' kingdom. Um, and the other disciples became indignant. And then Jesus became indignant with the disciples when they refused to let the little children come. Okay, so this word indignant is important. The disciples, again, are indignant, but for the wrong reasons. Okay? Every time they're indignant, it's for the wrong reasons. Okay? Um, you need to note that. <clears throat> Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. Now, it's very interesting that this woman, usually women don't own property in this, um, in this culture. Uh, this bottle of perfume may have been part of her bride price. You know, you know, in many of the Middle Eastern and, and, and some, of the, some, some of those different cultures, you'll see women with, um, with coins embroidered into the borders of their garment, things like that. Um, this was part of their bride price. It was in case they were divorced or widowed, they would have something of value that they could sell in order to support themselves. And this may have been her prized possession um, that was given to her on her wedding um, that was, belonged to her because nobody rebukes her for stealing it from the household. It belonged to her. It was hers to, to give. And it was probably all that she had to her name. And she gives it in total abandon in worship of Jesus. It's one of the most beautiful pictures of worship in the Bible. Okay? It's what we would call in the Old Testament a drink offering. If you remember the story of David, there's a wonderful story of David where he's in the, you know, he's in the fight with his mighty men and he's being chased by King Saul. And he says, I would just love to have a drink of water from the well in Bethlehem. You remember the story? And two of his mighty men sneak behind enemy lines and they draw a pitcher of water and they bring it back to David. And David, instead of, drink of drinking it, pours it out on the ground as a drink offering before the Lord. Um, and you go, what are you doing? What's the matter with you? That's like Mountain Dew. What are you? And, um, and, uh, but it, this was a means of offering. It was pouring something out of value before the Lord. Okay. And that's what she does. Paul says, my life is poured out like a drink offering. Okay. Before the Lord. And, um, so anyway, we see this going on. It's, it's a powerful picture 
um, and she gets rebuked by so, one, at least one, some of the disciples. Uh, we, we are pretty sure that one of those rebukers is Judas Iscariot because right afterwards, he's going to go into action, right? Well, in, um, in the John account, it was Judas that said this. Right, right. Uh-huh. Yeah. We just did that in circle. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So it's a powerful um, support that Jesus gives her, isn't it? Um, what she has done will be remembered. Uh, maybe her name will not be remembered, but she will be remembered. Um, and uh, this idea of anointing him for burial. I was thinking about this idea of perfume. Remember our timing. What, what, what day of the week is this when this takes place? Well, it's not quite Thursday. It's, it's probably Wednesday evening meal because the next day is going to be Thursday, right? Because we're going to go to uh, the Passover, which will be the next day. Um, and so this is probably Wednesday. Uh, at the evening meal. This perfume is poured over Jesus' head, and it's all the perfume. It runs down his hair, down his beard, into his, soaks into his clothing. This is the same clothing that he's going to wear at his trial. This is the same clothing he's going to wear virtually all the way to the cross. And can you imagine that as, he, as he's in the trial, as he's alone, as he's seeing Peter deny him through the lattice of the house into the courtyard, Jesus gets a whiff of this perfume. What this woman does is an incredible encouragement to him that sticks with him, you know? And you can imagine the disciples after Jesus is taken from them, them thinking, why didn't we do this? You know, why didn't we appreciate Jesus when we had him with us like this woman did? Truly what she did was, did was amazing. Verse 10, notice, Then Judas went, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus, and they were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity. They watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Um, did you notice the sandwich here? Okay, we've got a Mark and Sandwich going on, all right? So we start out with the chief priests conniving and scheming, and then we go to the story of the woman, and then immediately we go right back to the story of the chief priests conniving and scheming, all right? So we have a sandwich technique. So let's compare the two stories. Um, What points of comparison and contrast do you see? Death, I mean, death is, you know, by the chief priests or they're, you know, 
desire for them to kill Jesus. Okay. And it's, it's at the beginning and it's at the end. Okay, right. So it's a story of two plans, right? One plan is being carried out by the chief priest to kill Jesus. And another plan is being carried out by this woman to honor Jesus. Right? So we have two contrasting plans. Um, Judas. Okay. Ends up trying to figure out his plan. Right. <laughs> Judas is part of this conspiracy. So we have a conspiracy of people trying to destroy Jesus. And we have one person who literally stands alone honoring Jesus. Who are the people that are conspiring to kill Jesus? Okay, chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders. Okay? doesn't mention the Pharisees, actually. Chief priests, teachers of the law, elders. These are the guys that are indicted as the conspirators. They're the leaders of the temple. Okay? There are Pharisees involved in the Sanhedrin council, but it's, the idea is these are the top bananas, okay, of Jerusalem. These are the leaders. And then you have Judas Iscariot, one of the 12. So we have the most important people in society. We have one of the disciples he's named and his credentials are given. And then we have this woman whose name isn't even given. And she's a woman. Okay, see the, see the contrast? She's insignificant. They're significant. They're planning to do evil. She's planning to honor Jesus. What else do you see? We have a secret plot being hatched, right? It's very secretive. But this woman's display of honor is very public. She comes before Jesus, before all of these men. They're trying to mitigate risk, right? They're afraid of the people. They're trying to do things in secret, do things at night. This woman risks everything. She puts herself out there and gets rebuked. And she could have been rebuked by Jesus. But Jesus defends her, okay? But she takes tremendous risk in doing what she did. Um, money is exchanged. A, money is promised to Judas. A costly gift is given by this woman. Okay? Great expenditure is made in both plans. The reaction, the reaction to what the woman does the disciples or some of the disciples or at least Judas is indignant. How do the Pharisees or the religious leaders react when Judas shows up? They're delighted. Okay. Um, let's talk about place. The place is implied in the plot. But where does, where does this plotting take place? Where does Judas go to find these people? The temple. That's where they hang out. That's where their offices are. That's where the meeting rooms are for the Sanhedrin council. All of this takes place in the holy place. He goes from Bethany to Jerusalem? Yeah. So 
Where does this story of the woman take place? In the house of misery, in the house of a leper, in a place of uncleanness. So in a place of holiness as opposed to a place of uncleanness. But you see the juxtaposition is happening here. Okay. Um, both of these acts will be remembered. Jesus says what this woman has done will be remembered everywhere the gospel is preached. What Judas does will be remembered. He is the the greatest traitor that ever lived in the history of the universe, right? And what he has done is remembered by everyone, okay? His name is forever associated with what he has just, he has just done by betraying Jesus. See how these two stories, by being encapsulated in this literary technique, uh, the author is begging us to compare and contrast them. And as we compare and contrast them, we see new truth come from them, don't we? It's pretty cool. And Long live the sandwich. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking about Judas. And, you know, there's the old question that people ask, you know, if you were there and you saw Jesus feed the 5,000 and raise, you know, raise the dead and heal the sick, would you believe? And here's Judas that witnessed it day after day after day after day. And still didn't, obviously didn't believe. I mean, and he was one of the inner circle. I mean, and I know it was all foretold by God, but still you're looking at someone that saw everything. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that Judas is confused. I think intentionally. The, he has allowed the enemy to get into his mind, into his head. What Jesus was doing didn't fit with what they thought should be done. Judas obviously thinks that what Jesus has come to do, he's become misguided and he conspires against Jesus either because he believes that Jesus is a blasphemer, that he is against what Judaism really is. He's trying to defend Judaism or he's trying to force Jesus' hand and he's trying to bring this whole thing to a head so that Jesus will reveal his kingdom. Um, I don't think he's denying Jesus' power, but I think he's, he is misguided completely. I think it's more complex than him just being the evil plotter um, who betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. If that was the case, then he would have taken his money and walked away. But he kills himself at the end, right? And so we know that he doesn't end up content either with the outcome. Um, of the situation. And it's not that Jesus is the only person ever to claim to be the Messiah or that the Jews identified as being a Messiah because weren't there false messiahs yeah. around and yeah. just like false evangelists? And sure, so. sure. Well, what do we know about Simon the Zealot? I mean, were he and Judas maybe? You know, I mean, do we know? That's all I can. There, are, there are two ways to look at the word Iscariot. Some people say that um, Iscariot, well, Iscariot's not his last name, okay? Iscariot, either it's Ish Karioth, Ish meaning man, Karioth is a town in Judea, and so he was the man from Karioth. 
So it was Judas, the man from Kerioth, because there was another Judas among the twelve. So that was the way he was distinguished. Or Iscariot sounds also like the... um, the, uh, the guys who are the dagger guys, you know, the, the, the Sicarii. And so depending on how this word was translated from Aramaic to Greek, did, was, was this guy a zealot as well? And he was looking to see the... the um, terrorist. He was yeah. a terrorist, okay? And he wanted to bring in the kingdom by violence. And he's frustrated that Jesus hasn't taken the violent road, that he hasn't pushed the kingdom to happen. And so he says, all Jesus needs is he needs, he needs a, a reason to call down the, the fires of heaven and the angels, right? And I'm going to give him that reason. So who knows what was in his mind, okay? So um, let's get on. We got to talk about the last supper. We've got two minutes. On the first day of the festival of the unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. This is not just a time stamp, okay? This is important, right? That Jesus is about to be, pa- about to be the Passover lamb. Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want to go and make preparations to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city. You'll find a man carrying a jar of water, the whole story, right? Um, a mirac- another miraculous arrangement. Now, where did we see in a miraculous arrangement before? The donkey. the donkey on Palm Sunday. Okay, so we have two times in the gospel when there is a miraculous call-ahead arrangement. Okay, um, Uber and Uber Eats, if you will. <laughs> and so we've got two of these miraculous arrangements. One is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, and one marks the end of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. Okay? Because this is the last event before he gets arrested. And so we see these standing as kind of as bookends, and I think it tells us that God is in control through this whole thing. That God has been in control through all of it. They went... They prepared. They talked about betrayal. And then it says, while they were eating, verse 22, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take this, take this, take it, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. All right. Now it's interesting here because we have the way that the communion is described here. The bread is broken, and this is my blood. He gave them the cup of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So we have two verbs broken and poured out. Where have we seen these two verbs before? We saw it in the perfume, didn't we? So this woman broke the alabaster jar and she poured out the perfume. Jesus, in essence, his body is going to be broken 
and his blood is going to be poured out. It's her sacrifice of worship is exactly the same as what it foreshadows, what Jesus is going to do on the cross. Okay. And so you see this connection between the two and it ties them together so intimately, so beautifully. And what we do now in the, in the celebration of the Last Supper and the Lord's Supper is part of our worship, right? It's remembering that sacrifice, that being broken and poured out, and that we should be broken and poured out as well, right? And so um, it's really, I think, just a beautiful connection. Truly, I tell you, I'll not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Uh, So Jesus says, I'm not going to drink wine again until I drink it with you all again in the kingdom. Um, This is interesting because Jesus probably drank wine every day, right? And so before tomorrow at the evening meal, right? I'm not going to make it to tomorrow's evening meal basically what he's saying right and so and he doesn't he doesn't why they drank wine with every meal why because most of the water was bad and so they learned to make wine which killed the germs in the uh, the fermentation process killed the germs in the uh, water. Absolutely. And that's exactly what Jim does when he makes wine. <laughs> <laughs> Can't trust his Tulsa water. It's even worse. Okay, so uh, we come now to the end and Jesus is in Gethsemane. Uh, verse 32. When they went to the place called Gethsemane, And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter and James and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said, stay here and keep watch. Remember, we heard this in chapter 13. I'm telling you, keep watch, pay attention, stay awake. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father. This word Abba that's used here, it's the only time that the word Abba is used of, the, of all the Gospels. Um, the, the word in Greek is, is pater, right? Is for the word for father, the more formal word for father is used in the other Gospels. But in this Gospel, the word Abba is used, the Aramaic word for, for dad. Okay, very familiar, very intimate. Um, another, I think, one of the internal evidence uh, where you point to this being one of the, this the earliest account of Jesus because it's the, it's the most intimate. It's the most tied to his original words, his original language. Everything is possible. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So we, we have this cup tying back to the communion cup, but it's the cup of God's wrath, isn't it? This is, 
this is what I talked about my sermon on Sunday. It's the cup, uh, Jeremiah 25, that talks about the cup of God's wrath. We have to drink from the cup of God's wrath. Um, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. He took all the wrath of God on himself so that we would be freed from the wrath of God. Okay, that's the cup he's talking about. And he's like, I don't want to drink your wrath. I know what you're, I've seen you angry, <laughs> Father. <laughs> I know what that looks like. I don't want to drink this cup, but not your will, but mine. Jesus consumes the cup. He drinks the cup and there's no more wrath left for us. God's wrath has been turned away from us uh, because Jesus took it all on the cross. All that's left from God for us who believe is love. That's all. His wrath is gone. Um, The disciples are asleep. Right? Kind of pretty typical for us. Us as disciples. We fall asleep. We don't realize the significance of the hour. Right? Later... The disciples would have said, if I'd had just known what was about to happen, I would never have fallen asleep. Right? Um, well, it's late at night. They're full after the dinner. That's right. And Jesus said a lot of crazy stuff. They don't know what, you know, they don't know what's going on. There's been all kinds of emotion, sadness because someone will betray him. Um, all of these different emotions and all of these different things that have gone on. Is this kind of a juxtaposition of them staying awake and Jesus sleeping in the boat? Hmm. He's perfectly content. They're all upset. Yeah. Now they're all calm and he's all upset. Yeah. Yeah. The true storm is about to come. Yeah. Verse 42, rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. So we come now to the end of this section Really, and now we go into the time of Jesus' arrest and trial. And that's what we'll look at in the next section. And uh, really look at the question of who's on trial. Is Jesus on trial? Are the disciples on trial? Are the religious leaders on trial? Who's on trial here? And so that's the question I want you to think about as you read through the trial um, sequence.